0: Welcome to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Kim is a psychotherapist and executive director of ICU Talks, a mental health speaking ministry. This is a podcast about how to flip your lid and learning how to reconnect to who
1: you really are. All right, Flip Your Lid audience, we got something really special for you today. I have Nicole Madonna. I could just say Madonna, then you would get really excited, but I have Nicole Madonna with me today, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. She received her MSW from Fordham University. She has an extensive background in college mental health, program development, training, and therapy with adults for the past 20 years. Her clinical focus has been in treating complex trauma, including survivors of sexual and interpersonal violence, grief and loss, intersectional identities, and the trauma associated with this. Work with the LGBT community, specifically transgender In gender non-conforming individuals and crisis intervention and assessment. She's bilingual in Spanish and spent most of her professional life working and living in communities of predominantly Spanish-speaking individuals and families. She has an eclectic approach to treating individuals. She incorporates feminist theory, relational cultural theory, and institutional and narrative therapy. She is trained in act, cognitive behavioral therapy, and various crisis and trauma response and intervention techniques. She utilizes an intersectional social justice lens to help people work with all aspects of their own experience in helping her with their clients' experiences as well. So welcome, Nicole. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Kim. I'm really excited to share this piece of knowledge with the audience
1: well, I know you have a lot of knowledge, and I wanna I wanna start with where we we normally start with everybody, and that's just kind of understanding what what life event, what experience did you have that really flipped your leg, disconnected you from who you are, and what measures did you have to take to reconnect to who who you really turn out to be.
0: Uh, there, I was contemplating this before today, and I, there were so many developmental life moments. Um, so I decided to go with a more recent one that mm. plays into this imposter syndrome stuff that really came up for me. And um, I I went through a period of really um, sort of a professional identity crisis. Mm. Um, as a therapist, as you know, as a mental health provider, it's, I mean, it's very draining at times. And I was feeling really high levels of burnout and compassion fatigue, especially working with so much trauma. And there was a long time um, that I was like looking to get out of therapy and do something else and maybe more administrative, maybe more kind of an elevated director, but just not doing any therapy. And then COVID hit. Um, mm. And as a college mental health professional, most of our students left and went out of state. And then we have licensure restrictions that impede on our ability to really serve them. And my caseload went from enormous to almost nothing.
1: Wow. Wow.
0: And for, so for me, my, my sort of silver or I, I think now more like platinum lining moment was was that it really helped kind of refresh my brain and helped me reconnect to my why and why I wanted to first be in social work and do this work and provide my services to, to people and really had to reframe how to align with them in a different way. And I started a private practice during covid Um, and really, honestly, what I did as a professional was engage in therapy with another therapist that specializes in working with therapists. So, um, we're a special breed, I think, and we know what we need to do most of the time, but we, we can't really do that to ourselves. So her influence and her ability to help me focus and align with that. Why? And my purpose on a bigger level, um, or realign with it was, 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 mind-blowing for me and I'm in a a completely different place whatever seven eight months later that we've been in COVID I don't even know anymore right so that's that's something that more recently um, really challenged the way that I think about myself as a professional as a parent as uh, just a human being and, and what I want that to be and what do I want the next part of my career and legacy to look like
1: that takes a lot of courage to, to be that accomplished is what you're doing. Because you and I both know therapists who started their private practice and it, it never accelerated, like it never got anywhere. It, it, takes, yeah. it takes a lot of prior internal work mm-hmm. to externalize that in a way that the, the client-patient can experience something different. yeah So to reach that pinnacle and then to decide how, how do you shift
0: mm-hmm. in a
1: way that affirms who you really are. Yeah. 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 And, and reading your bio, obviously, you're very affirmative people, very loving, very empathetic. And so, to be that loving and then start having some compassion fatigue. So, I'm wondering, could you speak a little bit into that?
0: Yeah. It was so challenging for me. And that's actually what triggered me to initially start therapy on myself. Um, and I found this incredible therapist, and she and I really honed in and focused on the compassion fatigue. Um, I had just taken on the role as director at the counseling services where I work. And I knew that I was going to have to hold space for an enormous amount of clients along with the administrative duties. And I was also going through some personal crisis. I was going through a divorce at the time and I didn't want to pass up on that opportunity to further my career. And um, so I I had to figure out how to do that all Mm -hmm. at once. And so engaging in my own therapy was, was really critical to that. So um, so she really helped me to look at that, and she did a lot with internal family systems. Yeah, I love all of it. My imposter syndrome was yeah. just flaring um, all over the place, and <laughs> um, and I'll talk a little bit about more about yeah, that. But for yeah. me, it was really it was really deeply rooted in um, my perfectionism and um, sense of responsibility and being the eldest, and I, just a lot of things. And so I kind of really needed to reconcile with a lot of that before I could really accept that I was I was worthy. I I earned, I, I put in the work and earned things that I, that I had in my career and my life. Um, so that was really instrumental for me. It was working with her and I'm not trained in internal family systems. And that mm-hmm. was also incredible to be a therapist and have something done that I don't know anything about right, <laughs> or know right. minimal about. Right. Um, so that was actually really helpful. So I suggest that to, if you're a therapist and you want to seek therapy, find someone who does things a little differently than your style so that you can really adhere to what they're saying and really hear them.
1: That's a great suggestion because it means you walk in humbly, mm-hmm. you know, already knowledge and open, absolutely already acknowledging something that you don't know. Yeah. Because actually people expect us to know about every aspect of anything Yes, right? about law, domestic violence, about um seeking shelter, you know, yes. end of life stage, um, rehab versus physical rehab, like we're right. expected to, to know a lot and it's a beautiful position to be in. But what you just said is just so important that we find somebody who does it a little bit differently than our style.
0: Yeah. And that's become the focus of my practice. I wanted to um, focus on helping other mental health providers, um, activists, advocates, men- medical professionals, kind of frontline responders, especially during human crisis, whether it's a pandemic or a family crisis or mm-hmm. whatever that looks like for, for our clients. But we need a special space held for us
1: mm-hmm. um, yeah. really because we true. still have to
0: work and produce and do what we need to do to serve others. And we can't right. do that if we're not feeling whole.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely, absolutely right. And for those of you who are listening, if you want to check out Internal Family Systems, it was developed by Dr. Richard Schwartz, who personally trained me in amazing very calm centered man who has brought some things together to help us understand the different parts of ourselves Mm -hmm. so that we can really figure out what's your essence who are you really versus first knowing the part and then knowing the self within that part yeah right yeah it's, it's a lot of fun actually when the, if you can get really into the integrated, into the parts that integrated them.
0: Yeah. When I'm done with my work with her, I'm going to get trained in it. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can tell it's resonated with you. Yes, right? uh, completely, yeah.
0: It was, it was, it was mind blowing. It was probably the best therapeutic experience I've had in my adult life.
1: Yeah. Strong um, statement. Because
0: I didn't know what it was and I was able to not overthink and process and intellectualize.
1: Which is all part of perfectionism. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so a lot, there's a lot of connection perfectionism because that goes into shame and blame because a lot of people Mm -hmm. who try to be perfect, they're hiding, they don't want anybody to see anything wrong with them because they're already blaming themselves for something significant. Right. And that really also ties into imposter syndrome. And so if you can kind of take us there, I don't think people know about imposter syndrome as much as I would like for them to do too. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons I'm so excited you're here is to share that with us.
0: Yeah, and imposter syndrome sounds so fancy. Um, probably because it was a term that was coined by psychologists.
1: <laughs> so true, true. true.
0: We, we like to put things. We like to put those labels on things. But, um, but, but yeah. I mean, it's it's something that is internal to us, and it's um, for me, it was mostly based on perception rather than feedback. Mm. And it was something that I've carried with me in my professional life. Um, and even into being a parent for a lot of years of, you know, they're going to find out I'm a fraud at some point that I can't do this or that I don't know what I need to know. Or um, it came up for me a lot in the mental health community because I, I don't do well with like memorizing authors and theories. I know what I know and I know what I like to do as a practitioner, but I don't have it in my heart in that way. It's, mm-hmm. it's just kind of more embedded in who I am as a clinician. Mm-hmm. So I would always think like as a director or as somebody who's doing trainings or I'm not going to be respected if I don't know these things. And it really impeded on my, my, my growth, my, my professional growth, my clinical growth. And I didn't really fully realize that until I came into this role as a sort of elevated um, director and a clinician. Um, so that was something that, um, I, as I reflected on it, not just in therapy, just in, but just being introspective about who I am as a therapist, I said, "Like, where did that come from? Like, how do I how do I overcome that?" Because I feel like not just because I've been in the field a long time, but because I, I have focused so so strongly in certain areas and want to be able to, to give back what I've learned and to hold space for clients that, you know, maybe other therapists don't know how to do that for. And how do I really integrate those parts of myself so that I can feel like I know what I'm talking about in the moment right. and not let it hold me back and, and cause a lot of anxiety?
1: Right. So you start identifying that you are hiding parts of yourself. Yes. So you didn't even know if somebody would receive that well, if that was even part of there was just an assumption because you don't sound like the majority right
0: yeah well and i didn't i didn't i would see job postings and not apply for them because i didn't think that i would get it right Right. and then later i would get feedback from somebody um who would say well why didn't you like you have the experience for that Mm -hmm. i've seen your resume or i've worked with you x amount of years or you know whatever why wouldn't you put in for that um, and that's kind of what happened when I applied for this director role, where I had never been a director before. I'd been sort of mid-level mm-hmm. and it was a leap. Um, and but I decided to take that leap of faith and just mm. put myself out there and see what happened. But I what I realized I did later on in processing that was that I, I was coexisting with the anxiety and the imposter stuff and that fear of being a fraud while I was putting myself out there. And that was one of those other pivotal moments of, okay, if I don't do this, I'll never know. And what's the worst that can happen? I haven't, I had a job at the time. It's not like I was, you know, not worried, worried about where my mortgage payment was going to come from. But, but at the same time, it was learning how to coexist with that and Mm -hmm. um, hold space for both of those views that were really kind of conflicting with each other. And, it was everything in me to just press the button and press send.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and right. then
0: I had the opportunity at least for the interview and I said, okay, I can do this. I can do the interview and you know, how do you prep and how do you do all that? And so,
1: yeah. So that sounds like one symptom for people to pay attention to. If you're, if how someone else views you mm-hmm. is incongruent with how you view yourself.
0: Absolutely. And I, I, I have people in my life that have known me since I'm young, young in my career. And um, I've always been, I've always gotten the feedback that I'm confident and I exude this confidence or, um, you know, they would say, well, why wouldn't you do something? Because I've seen, you know, I see how you act or how you think or whatever. And I would say, well, because I can't do that. Like, why would I put myself out there? Mm. And um, I never really internalized that confidence, but then when I started to do a little bit more of these types of talks and public speaking, I began seeing it more in myself. Mm. Um, but it took a lot to get to a place where I would put myself out there to do it and, and right. really own it years.
1: <laughs> in fact. So I believe that voice is not ours, right? That, that self-doubt, mm-hmm. that critical voice. And so if you are in agreement with that, did you learn, so that's an outside voice that came in. Did you learn where it came from? Was that part of your process?
0: Yeah. So a, a part of my process was um, learning how to honor the voice inside. Um, so one of the things I did was really look critically, um, both in therapy and out, at where what were the origins? What are the roots, right? And how old was I when I first mm-hmm. had those thoughts and feelings come up? Um, and, and for some people, it's a teacher, it's a coach, it's a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, very rarely does it just come from ourselves for the very first time. It's something right. that we internalize from outside.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so yeah, so that's what I started to do. And I, I realized that, um, my, some of the first times I thought these things were where I really couldn't be perfect. Like I, I felt like I couldn't handle, you know, going to school and working in high school or college. And, um, and it was really rooted in a lot of that perfectionism,
1: mm-hmm.
0: And I'm the eldest of, in my family. And, and for me, that I internalized this pretty great sense of responsibility. Um, also, being the first, um, and I'm kind of the oldest by a lot. My, my brother is seven and a half years younger than me, and then they're younger than him. So for me, I, I really wanted to be a role model and. Being a young person, I don't really understand what that felt like, mm. but that's where it came from for me because anytime I would have something that I couldn't perfect or that I didn't do successfully, it was automatically a failure. It was automatically a very black and white, rigid thinking of this is this is not something I can do. And so that was really permeated adolescence in, up into high school and college. Mm.
1: Do you think that's a natural role that a firstborn goes into or, or a parent's unintentionally giving messages? that that in, that encourage the oldest one to help out kind of thing yeah to be that person
0: I think for me given my family structure because there was such an age gap I did do a lot of helping and wanted to be able to do that for my mom
1: mm-hmm.
0: um and I was never I don't know if you know if anybody who's listening knows me I I hate cleaning and I was just
1: never my strong Amen. Amen. <laughs> so, who, who said we had to do that anyway so <laughs> That was always a, a bone of contention growing up with me and my mom. Right, so, right.
0: Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there were moments like that that would come up and I would feel like I couldn't perform or couldn't do something good enough to help.
1: Mm-hmm. And it
0: wasn't necessarily a direct message from her. It was something that I just felt like I wanted to do.
1: Mm-hmm. And then
0: I, I think that trickled out into learning as a social work student learning how to come to terms with some of the things that I had gone through as a child and going to my own therapy and going through that, but also having it all kicked up when you're in school for counseling or social work. Right. Um, it, you're, you kind of have your stuff put in your face a little bit mm-hmm. and hearing from professors, well, if you don't work on, your, you don't work on your stuff, you're not going to be a good therapist. Right. Um, and being like, you know, 19 or 20 years old and freaking out about, wow, maybe I made the wrong career choice then if I can't handle all this. <laughs> right. Right, And that was the that was the professional voice was was mm-hmm. several professors that would critique and criticize and not just me. It would be all of us. Um, and then like immediately going to therapy and trying to work on it and trying to like expedite that process. That's not mm-hmm. how things work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And then, you know, when I graduated, I didn't go into therapy. I actually went into programming and development because I thought, why well, I, I can't do therapy because I haven't resolved my stuff.
1: <laughs> wow. That's it. That's what you just said. So important for people to hear, you know, of how it when it comes critically, or if it's set out there and it touches on something critically inside that critical voice, how it really is significant, yeah, like it paused things for a little while, I mean obviously you turned out great and dealt with it, but that's a heavy messaging I can't deal with my stuff, so therefore I can't do what I love, that's yeah heavy,
0: and it was really my first lesson in our in this field of how how our words carry so much power, yeah, say that again our our words carry so much power, and that yeah. was a very humbling moment for me when I realized that I had, I don't feel like I lost time in my career because I think, I think the work I did in the beginning was significant and, and helpful. And, you know, for me and, and, and the people I served, but I, it, if I didn't come back full circle and have another mentor later on that was encouraging and compassionate mm-hmm. and, and helpful, I don't know that I, I don't know if I would have.
1: Yeah. So that's a really good point. Who, so who was your mentor? Who came in and, and saw the, truth in you?
0: Um, My aunt at the time owned an employee assistance program. And um, after college, I went to Arizona as a VISTA volunteer. Uh Um, It was through the AmeriCorps program and it was right when it all first started. So it was an amazing experience. It's kind of like the domestic Peace Corps for those of you that don't Mm -hmm. know. Um, So I lived in Arizona for three years. One of them was with AmeriCorps um, and I wanted to come back to New York, where my family's from, because I wanted to go to Fordham. It's where my grandfather went. They had an amazing program. I, I would be able to combine clinical work and administrative work because I was still on the fence about being a clinician. Mm. Um, but I didn't want to close it off because of the things that I had done in the work in Arizona. Um, so my aunt hired me uh, to do some provider relations work uh, and while I was in grad school. Um, in New York City. And she, working with her and then all the rest of the clinical staff there, the environment was so warm and welcoming and Mm -hmm. affirming. And um, I got validated in so many ways of the path, this kind of zigzag I took. Mm -hmm. Uh, So really there was everybody who worked there mentored me in their own way, but my aunt really took me under her wing and she had an MSW as well and, and a business background and kind of combined them.
1: Oh, that's great. So that's what I
0: saw myself doing. I didn't see myself as a pure clinician at that point still.
1: Right. Yeah. No, that's so, great. And and that is the necessary environment, that warmth. Yes. N- to be affirmed. Is Was that part of your experience that led you to be affirming towards people who are marginalized?
0: Yes. And and certainly working as a white clinician in a, in a Spanish language community and, and sometimes being the only one that could serve in that role was um, really made me face a lot of the internalized bias and messaging, um, making mistakes and learning how to make amends and be humble, learning mm-hmm. how to remove the the white savior suit um, mm-hmm. that a lot of us have just inadvertently yeah. because of the culture we're, we're raised in um, and really humbling myself to, to really serving alongside
1: the community versus for. Right. right. And that,
0: that really is a difference,
1: right? And, yeah. Did something in particular happened that helped you to know that, it's not your job to save somebody that it's not that the white savior complex, like is something significant happened. It was like a lot of little things added up and it helped you start to realize that it's more of a supportive role.
0: I, I think it was a, my, my role in Arizona was one uh it was more about connecting people to social services and creating programs and opportunities that didn't exist in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I got out there more, and met families and spoke to them about what they needed. It just became sort of the natural shedding of that layer. Um, Because I, what I thought I knew, I didn't know. And I, and I needed to do my own research and not, not use them for the research, but really to kind of understand the community, understand the structure, understand the history. Um, And the, the school that I worked at the community I worked at was on the old, old route 69 old highway 69. And Mm -hmm. In that particular section, there was a lot of hotels that had become very run down, and most of my families lived in there. And they were by the hour or by the day or sometimes by the week. Hmm. Um, so technically, they were all considered federally by the federal statute homeless. Right. Um, so, yeah, there was a, there was multiple times where I was confronted with it, um, one of which was at a food drive I did, and I was distributing Food to families. And it was also my first lesson of how you have to ask for help because I, I should have had food for 450 families and I only served 300 because I had no process or structure and I didn't know what I was doing.
1: Right. And I didn't
0: ask for help because I didn't want to be looked at as weak or somebody right. that couldn't
1: handle it. Yeah. Is that, is that a fear of yours is being perceived as weak?
0: It was, yes.
1: Yeah. It was for a long time.
0: Mm. Um, or just that I didn't know what I was doing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but like, it's okay.
1: Nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> we're all learning right there's freedom in that I mean right yeah so someone called you out at 21 right (laughs) yeah so someone called you out during during that or yeah, but, they you know, call me out and I,
0: yeah. I, I speak Spanish. I'm, I'm not quite as fluent as I was back then, but mm-hmm. I spoke Spanish to a family that didn't speak Spanish and they spoke English because I didn't have the understanding um, because of my lack of knowledge and and doing my own research and my own work. Mm-hmm. didn't understand the difference between some of the Chicano families who might've been right. from Arizona and didn't right. speak Spanish right. and, and maybe families who had em- immigrated from Mexico. Like I didn't think about it. Yeah. Um, so it re- that was one of the first times that my my ignorance and my privilege was kind of put in my face and that idea of good intentions are good intentions, but you also have to know what, what you're doing mm-hmm. with a good intention to make sure they land in a good way.
1: Mm-hmm. The cultural uh, awareness. Absolutely. Right.
0: Yeah. Right. So and it's was really beginning.
1: part, it's part of the beauty I think of getting a master's in social work. I don't think people realize how expansive it is and yeah. the micro or, or, Macro, micro, there's so many different things. Like it's a really wonderful degree, but yes. it doesn't mean you automatically know what you're going to do because you can go work at DSS, you can right. go be director of a college, or you right. can go in private practice. It, it is it is vast. and so it's, it,
0: it's, yeah. it, That was why I chose this field because of that, because it was mm-hmm. so diverse.
1: Mm-hmm. It's very and I diverse.
0: knew I wasn't going to get stuck in one area that I could do so
1: yeah. much. Yeah. So I'd love yeah. to know how you got into and assuming you've provided therapy for transgender and gender nonconforming individuals. Mm-hmm. And partially why that excites me I want to ask is that my whole career, usually at some point in time, I've had someone within who's transgendered who's gone from male to female or female to male. And I consider it an absolute privilege. that the bravest people I've ever met. Incredible. And other therapists don't have have never had this experience. They've never yeah. had anybody walk in the door in the first place. Yes. So I'd love to hear your background about that.
0: I actually had um, the amazing opportunity to work with a um, graduate assistant when I was working at UNC Charlotte, um, who is now, I did his um, clinical supervision as well when he graduated from the UNCC um, social work program, and he identified as transgender. And he and I came up with um, trainings together where we would sort of model the aspiring ally slash accomplice experience and he would tell his story and we um, collaborated pretty heavily on that mm-hmm. and became very good friends um, after that as well mm-hmm. and so he really um, brought that into my world um, and then I served on the board of Transcend Charlotte. I was one of the founding board members yeah. um, in the first three years or so of his, of his existence. It's still around. I just right. stepped on the board to right step off and give opportunity and not take up the space. Um, So um, it was just really, and then um, being from New York, I've worked with numerous clients in different capacities, but to me, it was more about providing a safe space um, for, for human beings who, who need help really. Um, Mm -hmm. And, um, and why not? And that's what we're supposed to do as social workers. And it's part of my value system to make sure that, people get care and help that they need um, and are not afraid to to do that. And there was so much fear that happened with, in these last few years, I mean, certainly they forever, but certainly in the last few years is more attention Mm -hmm. and with more attention spikes, violence and aggression and um, negativity. And with that, in that population of folks has been an increase in suicidality and drug addiction and Mm -hmm. um, completed suicides and murders. Um, So it became part of, because it aligns with my values, which is another piece that I did when I was trying to overcome my imposter syndrome was,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what are my values? Am I living in them as a professional, as a, as just as a woman, as a mom? Like, mm-hmm. am I, am I doing this? Am I embodying the things that I want to? Mm-hmm. Um, And if, if not, what do I need to do to get there?
1: Right. And so yes,
0: that's so, part of that.
1: Yes. That's good questions. And, and just also a distinction of the suicide rate being so much higher with transgendered, yeah. community is not because they're transgendered it right. is because of how they get treated while they're trying to be themselves right it's because of, they are being raped they are being attacked they are things are happening to them and so when people i've had parents tell me that they're doing the best they can that when they found out about their child being transgender right so my concern is they'll kill themselves because they're transgender so it won't be because they're transgendered right it would be because of how they get received
0: absolutely right
1: absolutely. yeah and yeah. not
0: having a, a sense of community and right. not Knowing where that is, and that's something that Transcend Charlotte um, has done so beautifully in our community in in Charlotte. That mm-hmm. um, that I just wanted to help as much as I could to get it started. So, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, what a great resource for people to yes. to know about, to know that that is absolutely absolutely an organization and available to people. Yeah, and and just knowing the interesting clash of imposter syndrome and people who are transgendered, because yeah. I think a lot. A lot of times we think people don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. There's really a lot of us who are considered normal, quote, don't know who we are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I was, yeah, I mean, even doing this work, you know, this this work is so culturally specific and you really need to know your clients and, and how to approach this topic because it doesn't impact everybody the same,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking about working when I've worked with, um, black women who are, who are trying to kind of rise up in companies where they don't see themselves above themselves. Right. And that sense of belonging is different and it's not necessarily imposter syndrome that's based in, you know, in institutional racist structures and things right. like that, which, which, you know, can intersect with that, but it's a mm-hmm. whole different approach. And I yeah. might not be the right clinician for that approach. And, yeah. you know, knowing that about myself because of the identities that I hold and being able to have that kind of an open conversation with a client and say, okay, do, do we want to continue this work? or do we need to find maybe a black female therapist for you to work with that you identify with in a different way? Mm-hmm. And how does that, how, you know, how might that work for you or fit for you? And those are really important conversations to have
1: mm-hmm.
0: that have nothing to do with imposter syndrome, but it's difficult for clinicians to put that out there because even though we're taught that we should have those conversations, I think I avoided them when I was younger because I didn't again, want to be seen as not competent or not able to handle things, right. but it wasn't about my competence. That was my ego. Right. right. It's it's right. just more about like, I'm just, if I'm not a fit, I'm not a fit. And yeah. it's
1: okay. Yeah. Which is another sign of of a a centered, grounded therapist is mm-hmm. that they don't need your money. They don't need you as a client. They'd rather you be where you're supposed to be. And absolutely. that's a strong level of trust that I can tell that you have with the, the process. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What questions do you ask your clients and your patients when it comes to see if they are struggling with imposter syndrome, how do you, how do you identify that?
0: I'll normally hear it in their story a little bit. Um, and I'll, I'll listen for things like that perfectionism, where that plays out and what aspects of their life, um, anxiety, work anxiety. Um, we'll have conversations about, I have a client I'm working with now who, um, talks about, um, kind of overcompensating at work and it burns her out. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's because in part, because she has that perfectionism and she doesn't want to be looked at it Like she can't do stuff right. um, because she's also new in the field. So um, those are the things that I kind of listen for. And then I, I, I kind of take them through a few different steps to kind of help them think bigger. And, and this is really hundred percent based in the work that I have done. It's not based in any textbook or anything like that. And, um, I like to do some values work with with people. No matter when we've entered the field, it's always good to use our values and our, our, our why as our touch point so that we know what that is at all times and we're able to conjure it up. And the why could change. Like certainly before I had a child, my why was a little bit different. Now right. he's kind of... He's piled up in that why, <laughs>
1: creating a better world, bet right?
0: <laughs> so that's okay if that changes, but it's important right. to make sure that we have our fingers on it at all times so that we know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to do values work because also values are something that we all have and we've learned from different places, whether it's your home life or your church or your synagogue or like yeah. wherever. Right. But we don't necessarily identify them as values or as something that's core to who we are.
1: Mm-hmm
0: so that's something that I like to do. And I, I did some really good work on that with myself and um, how does that, and then how does that align with my career or my goals or what I'm doing? Um, how I live my life, the people around me, right? Um, my friends, my, like, who, you know, what, what, how does that have its tentacles in everything?
1: Mm-hmm. It's not um, it like it goes back to the internal family systems about, is it congruent, right? Cause that's how yeah. we know we're, we're in self that, there's a congruency, right? It's like you're helping them get an understanding of that.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and clients love that kind of work too, because there's a bunch of different assessments about values or, or even strengths. Like strength quest is a great assessment and it's like 1199. So sometimes I'll give that to clients. Mm-hmm. Um, Brene Brown has a great values handout. And then certainly ACT has a lot of values handouts and things like that, that if you're a therapist or a person who likes to be a little bit more concrete, you can do that. I like to just discuss, mm-hmm. um, but uh, and and this is an area where I'll I'll use a little bit of self-disclosure as well and talk about it, especially if it's hard for them to conjure up the values, words or, or themes for themselves. Mm-hmm. And I'll share some of the things that I value and where how they're my anchors in my profession and how they keep me grounded when I mm-hmm. feel like I might be going through some burnout or I'm just tired or fatigued after, you know, whatever. Right, right. And then I always connect that back to purpose. And depending on where people are at, purpose is like a really troublesome big concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was for me too, because it just felt so big. It felt really yeah. big. But at the end of the day, for me being a social worker and just being in this role, is a it was a calling. Um, it right. wasn't something I said, oh, let me just try social work and see if that major sticks. Right. Right. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so I had to kind of, that, that really helped me to see that this was really bigger than me. And it was, mm-hmm. I'm sort of a vessel for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not always true for everyone. And it's, and it's, so that's sometimes a hard concept to work on. And as a, as a therapist with clients, mm-hmm. um, but it's something that I still like to do and, and kind of help them focus back in on that. And if, you're, if they're not in alignment, what happened? Um, sometimes working with college students, they'll be coming to college in a major that was chosen for them or really encouraged by their parents mm-hmm. and not by them. And they're not connected to it. And maybe they right. want to be an artist and their mom wants them to be a business major or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they hate the classes and they're not doing well and they're struggling and they're mm-hmm. failing. And it's because they're not connected to it.
1: Right. Yeah, there's incredible tension when you know, there's a condition placed on on you, like like what major you should have, what you should do for the rest of your life, and you're trying to please right. a parent because you innately want your parents' approval. You know, and so to have someone like you that's present who can help them see on their own of what's happening. Yeah, yeah. can you talk a little bit more about the 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 therapy, the acceptance and commitment therapy? And, um, you know, what that's been like for you.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love, I love ACT. ACT came to me by accident. Um, and it was probably about, gosh, eight or 10 years ago. I was in supervision. I was at the time I was working in the Bronx at a college counseling center and I was discussing a client that, um, had an attempted sexual assault, um, maybe a, a block away from her building. And it was a neighborhood she grew up in and she was feeling very unsafe and insecure. And um, so I, I was describing this and in my interventions with my supervisor. And she said, Oh, that sounds like ACT. And I said, what's that? <laughs> tell me more. Right, right. At the time I was struggling with my clinical identity. Cause I didn't really, I was a newer clinician because remember I didn't do clinical work first out. That was my mm-hmm. first clinical position. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I said, Oh, well tell me more about that. And so she, gave me all these books from her bookshelf and, you know, Russ Harris is sort of the father, I guess, if you want to call him that. Right. right? And I just loved the concept at at, at the very basic concept of, you know, I accept that I'm not in a good place, but I'm still committed to the things that I value or my work ethic or school or whatever that is. And I'm going to press forward and stay committed to completing those things. Mm -hmm. And I think in particular, I've utilized it a lot with trauma clients, because trauma and, and especially interpersonal or sexual trauma is something that it's one of those it's, the, it's one of those things that happens on your lifeline that really can sever. Mm-hmm. And there's a before and after. Yes. And there's not a lot of understanding as to why me, right? Mm-hmm. And and why and and it brings people to question so much about their safety and security in the world or their identities if it, if they were targeted for that or you know mm-hmm. whatever the case may be. And I feel like ACT does a really great job of bringing them back to focus on their values, on their guiding internal principles, um, and, and how to stay committed despite the fact that you don't feel great. And despite the fact that you've had this horrific event happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't necessarily practice it in its purest, although I've studied it in its pure forms. I like right. to kind of take what I need from things and leave the rest, <laughs> Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> which
0: is why I call myself more eclectic and, right. um, but I love, love, love that. And, and, and that's where I do a lot of the values work from is, is the ACT values work.
1: hmm yeah and and I think you've done well it's obvious you've done something that a lot of people don't do, and that is they like it's just I have my chemism right like i have I stayed all these modalities I figured out what worked for me, and then I threw me in it yes, and I really really hear that clearly with you that yeah you very much have your personality and your love for people in in everything that you do and that's 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 what really wraps up the, any modality that's the that's the glue of it.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. And that's not something you can learn in a book. And it's something mm-hmm. you have to do by practice. Right. Although now that I've been in the practice a little while, when I have interns or MSW students, it's where I start with them. Um, mm-hmm. Because I never got that messaging as a young clinician.
1: Right.
0: Um, it was always by the book, right? I mean, and mm-hmm. we need to we have we have testing and you know, whatever. I mean, that's right. that, Of course, but that that Authenticity and bringing up yourself Mm -hmm. in the in the clinical space is not something you can ever learn until you're doing it, Um, and we need guides to help us with that. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, So Mm -hmm. yeah,
0: I like to now I like to give that back to any students that I work with.
1: Absolutely, and that's part of the fighting against the imposter syndrome is yes, knowing it's really okay to to be yourself, and it's really okay that doesn't that doesn't gel well with. Potential patient, if they need to go see someone else,
0: absolutely. And I always provide a consult for potential clients because if I'm not the right person, I want to help you get connected to whoever it is because it isn't Mm -hmm. about money, it's not about growing my practice, it's Mm -hmm. about having a letting the client have an experience that will uplift them and help them elevate into their best self. And if Mm -hmm. I'm not the one to do that, then why would I keep them? You know, it's not fair,
1: right? Yeah, it it makes sense, but. You saying that is so logical, but it's not what a lot of therapists are, are, I know. do it, because they haven't been taught that. They don't have the emotional freedom yet or capacity right. for it, or they really do need to pay their mortgage. And it becomes about that for them. Right. You know, Absolutely. Very, and I totally,
0: I mean, I understand yeah, that. Yeah.
1: Very human. Completely, yeah. completely understand that. But there's so much that you're doing. And I think people just need to know about that. That's that you're available, that you're the person they can walk into the room and you're not going to ask them to be anyone else. They're asking themselves to be someone else, to be in right. a different place, to find out more who they are. That's very different than a therapist, because then we just become the not good enough mom.
0: Yes, <laughs> exactly. Right.
1: <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> People have had enough of that.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I always joke with uh, my colleagues that when I first started in college mental health, I was the cool aunt, and now I'm definitely the mom. Like I could have definitely had these kids. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So. I, with that right, and I'm, right. I'm not who I thought I was anymore. right yeah how did that shift
1: at the age of 12 how did that just happen right. I know right yeah. exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> completely yeah it's not like you bring a lot of fun into it even though it's very serious especially knowing that you do a lot with complex um, PTSD yeah.
0: yeah well and I and, and it's such a basic concept but I do firmly believe in being where the client is at and mm-hmm. when it comes to engagement um, having worked with college students for so many years, there's sometimes that I've done a first session that we just talk about their likes and dislikes and what's on their playlist. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because they've never been to a therapist before or they've never had a positive experience, mm-hmm. and we have a lot of, you know, they. It's too egotistical to have somebody in your office and say, "Well, they should just trust me. Because I am who I am." Right. There's a lot of things that go into that trust. There's a lot yeah. of complexity. There's a lot mm. of layers to that given, you know, depending on the identity and the space that you take up in the room. Mm-hmm. So I never go in there thinking that I'm the best person and I'm the expert. I'm higher than,
1: right. even
0: though there's a natural hierarchy, I think that happens no matter what mm-hmm. you try to do to erase it. Mm-hmm. It's still not something that I embody. Um, right. I don't believe in that.
1: Right. Yeah. Which again, goes back to why you can have a spectrum of people, like people across yeah. the spectrum can come and be a part of, of what you have to offer. Right. And still have a specialty at the same time, still have your way of of helping people, you know, that works for you. What's been the most surprising thing for you as a therapist? Um, I'm
0: trying to think. Wow, that's a good question. I think just just being able to have a front seat to the beauty of human resiliency Mm -hmm. Um, nothing specific is surprising. It's just having worked with trauma and and the layers of it so many years, I'm just so in awe of how people, how they come back, they bounce back, they redirect, they, they just, they exist in spite of, Mm -hmm. um, and do more than exist. They they thrive Mm -hmm. in spite of. Yeah. And sometimes I get to be a part of that and sometimes I'm not. Right. Sometimes it's just me kind of sitting in the passenger seat with them. Sometimes mm-hmm. I help them drive, just depends mm-hmm. on what they need. But that to me is just so amazing. Yeah. Just it's such amazing.
1: A, it's such a beautiful process.
0: It's so amazing. Yeah. yeah. And I just look at it as such a privilege and an honor and not as
1: a job. It, it is a privilege. Like I, I posted today on Facebook about that, you know, therapy is a privilege, but it shouldn't be for the privileged. Yeah. Right. Yes. Like, and part of that is, is racial, it is gender, it's a lot of things, you know, for a man to walk in for therapy, you know, yeah. he, and it doesn't take away from a woman walking in, but it's just, he was taught to not even go to a doctor if he had a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. So it it's a privilege, you know, our brown and black brothers and sisters are not taught at all right. to go to therapy, which is why I love what you said about being culturally aware when someone walks in the room. Yeah. That there's things we have to know or refer out so that we don't add to their trauma.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And that's where cultural humility comes in as well. And and really, really owning the fact that you might not be that person's fit, not Mm -hmm. because you're not a kind, caring human being Mm -hmm. or knowledgeable, but because it just might not be who they need. And it's about them, not us. And I think that was another component to my imposter syndrome was like really letting go of the... Ego that can sometimes be kicked up. It's almost like the opposite effect, right? Of right. like, well, you know, I'm 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 good at this, and so why wouldn't somebody want to work with me? But it's not about me,
1: right? That's right. That's right. And also, i to look at what are, what are we hiding? Like, what are we, yeah, right in that? What do I want? Not want someone else to see. You know, what am I trying to prove to myself? Which again goes back to blame, which is a big part of imposter syndrome. Yeah, how to walk it out, right? So, um, my mother is from panama, so i am I'm partial Hispanic, mm-hmm. and so she does not speak she did not speak Spanish in our household unless she was cussing me out, which was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and that is cultural. Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes, it is different and i it's, I didn't understand the child, but it's such such an honor and privilege now because when people come in who are um, hispanic. And they talk about their moms, they talk about the food, they talk about their stuff. Like, I like they can feel it from me that I'm right with them. Yeah. But I can't speak Spanish with them. Yes. And I hate that, but I can't. And so sometimes there's one lady I see now and she'll just start speaking in Spanish just out of frustration. And she's like, Do you understand? I'm like, No, but I wish I did. I know. <laughs> but, but I feel you. I feel your frustration. Yeah. I feel like when I
0: started working in college mental health, I lost some of the fluency that I once had um, mm-hmm. because it was mostly, spanglish that we would talk and right. it was kind of a mix so yeah. i definitely understand more now and i feel like if i was going i could but i don't want to ever misrepresent myself to the community and mm-hmm. you know i the do no harm rule you know and right. being really cognizant right. of that so now i'll refer to a, a, a fluent spanish-speaking therapist if i need mm-hmm. to just because i don't i don't know i get anxious and that's not my imposter syndrome that's real that's like i'm, I'm yes. definitely not as i don't yeah. flow as well as yeah. i used to
1: yeah so so explain a little bit about how you know the difference. Cause I can tell, cause I get, I'm watching, if y'all, if y'all watching on YouTube, you can see it too in her. Like when you said that, that was just truth. But how do you know now that it's not imposture that it's core self?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, yeah, I um, I don't know a, a solidified answer to that. For mm-hmm. for me, my process is, um coexisting with it. Like when you had put out the call for somebody to come and talk on your podcast, I thought I've, I i can not do that. Why? Who wants to hear mm-hmm. about this? But I still mm-hmm. type my name in there.
1: <laughs> yes. I love that. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and right. it's just,
0: a, it's just learning how to own my authentic self enough to say, I have something that's going to touch someone's life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this is, this is a message that I want to share. And, I'm going to do it, even if I have some anxiety about it, or even if I stumble, right? Or even if I say "um" too much, or "like" too much, or whatever. I'm not perfect at it, right? And because that's part of my gift Mm -hmm. of being imperfect and Mm -hmm. and showing that and how people do that. So for me, it's more like, okay, I see something as an opportunity now, and um, and say, okay, well, I'm just going to do it and coexist with all those emotions at once and see what happens. Yeah. And the first time I did that was when I applied for that big job and that really kind of broke that for me. Uh,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the action that it takes, right? That it does take an action, it does take yes. that, that faith of I don't know if this is going to work out, but I hit send. Yeah. That's yes. so powerful because it's more about hitting send than it is about getting the job.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Yeah. There's yeah. good power in that.
0: Yeah. And and challenging myself and I I I did a talk, I don't know if you've all heard of Ignite Charlotte, <sighs> mm-hmm. um, the five-minute talks. I um, This was something that I actually worked on in therapy because I really wanted to do it. And actually, this was the topic that I spoke about was honoring your imposter voice because it had spoken to me so much. And I wanted to share and share and share, right? So I, I worked on this in therapy for weeks and the deadline, it was the day of the deadline and I had already had it written out and like ready to go. And I just, I literally hovered around that send button for 10 minutes. And it was due like 11.59. I think I submitted it at like 11 right. <laughs> the day of. Right. And then I was like, okay, it's done. We'll see what happens. I can always say no. I'm not committed. You know, I just put in for it. So this is the self-talk I do. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, putting myself out there doesn't commit me to doing it. It just mm-hmm. puts myself out there and it gets that initial anxiety to, mm-hmm. to, to shut up a little bit. Right. right. And then... Right. So I, that's how I look at it. So, and I, so I wound up doing that talk and it was back when we were still doing things in person. And I remember I was the, I think the second speaker in the second half. And so I had to listen to all the talks and sit there and freak. I was freaking out. I was sweating. Mm-hmm. I was like, mm-hmm. I, because I had to memorize stuff too. I wasn't just like using a PowerPoint, which I'd done many times. Right. And I just remember the, the standing up on the stage, standing next to the stage And being introduced and the second that I put my feet on the X, just this Mm. calmness
1: Mm.
0: and letting it just letting go and shedding all the stuff that I thought was going to hold me back. And it just was so automatic. And I I don't know why or how that happened, but I think all the prep work moving towards that and being very self-compassionate and just letting myself flow Instead of fighting the anxiety and the stress and the imposter Mm. stuff and knowing that I was going to talk about that anyway and I could use that, right? um, So true, was really helpful. I don't know. So, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: it's just again, it's that groundedness is that you prepared and it's the ACT, it's like it's you living out, yeah, the therapy. And so, if anybody wants to, and and I've watched that talk by the way, it's great. And so, thank you. I can't remember if I watched on Vimo or YouTube.
0: Um, I
1: think it's on both. It's on both. Okay. So yeah. if people want to go watch that, then they can definitely check that out. Before we give people other ways to stay in touch with you, because you're stuck with me now, Nicole. I hope, <laughs> I hope the feeling is mutual because, like, I I'm really happy like to be you. stuck with
0: you, Cam. Yeah. fine. <laughs> we're
1: going like, to, like, hang out and do stuff. So, um, yes. but before we give people a way to keep in touch with you, since you're a therapist, I'm going to put you on the hot seat. All right, so I'm going to ask you a few questions, and just whatever comes to mind, you just tell okay. us what comes to mind first, okay? All yes. right, first word comes to mind when you hear the word choice. Freedom. Freedom is great. Do you have any tattoos? Uh,
0: 11, and another one coming November 14th.
1: <laughs> so you're saying, like, you have 11 tattoos?
0: Uh-huh.
1: What's the youngest age you got a tattoo?
0: Um, on my 18th birthday.
1: On your 18th birthday. So yeah. compare the, the, your latest one, your 11th one to the first one.
0: Oh gosh. Yeah. Completely different. Um, and I just wanted it because I was told I couldn't have one until I was 18. Amen. So I just kind of went and got it because yep. I wanted it. Absolutely. I didn't put any thought into it. Um, the one that I just had, um, Catherine from Halo just cause she's amazing. i want one for her out there. Mm-hmm. Um, she helped me create this amazing really life transition, Piece, which is mm. I started designing it after my divorce and uh, or during my divorce, and then built on it. And so it was very, very significant. It represents um, all my human anchors: my son, my mom, my siblings. Mm. So mm. very You're different, re- much more thought put into it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and like it represents freedom for you. The word you chose for yes. choice is, is the freedom, and it
0: ties into my business. That they're they're actually lotus flowers um, because the lotus, you know, the myth of the lotus, not the mm. myth, the, the the story of the lotus is that it you know, comes up and blossoms through the mud and is, um, pure and beautiful once it comes up. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, that's kind of how I feel like I came out of some of the darker times in my life.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes total sense. I love that. Yeah. Okay. What is on your nightstand?
0: Uh, a glass of water, probably from last night still, (laughs) um, uh, hair ties and a cell phone charger. I try to keep it simple.
1: Keep it simple. I love it. I love it. All right. So if you could go back and talk to your high school teachers, what would you want them to know about you?
0: I would want to thank them. I was Mm -hmm. going through – high school was really, really rough for me, and um, I really felt that there was – my English teacher would check in with me all the time, and she never pushed me to talk about my stuff, but she always wanted me to know that I could. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know that I had the capacity for – Gratefulness, um, given that it was such a dark time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, I guess I would want to explain a little bit more, um, not because I felt like I needed to, but because right. I would want her to kind of be wrapped up in it, so she could help mm-hmm. me more.
1: Yeah, that, that connection. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Who do you admire the most? Present company excluded.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Who I admire the most? I think, I think I admire. I, mean, I know I admire my mom a lot. Mm-hmm. I think she had. She's been through a, a lot of hard times and did the best that she could at Mm. each of those stages for us. Um, And we all turned out pretty amazing. I think Um, (laughs) she's supportive and encouraging. And even when she couldn't hold space for us because of what she was going through, she always was Mm. Um, the things that I do now with my son, like honor Christmas traditions or create new times. Or, I mean, I learned from her how to be a parent. Mm, Um, And so and she was going through a lot of pain that I don't think I could have understood as a kid that I do now and still was able to parent us and and be an amazing human being.
1: Yeah. That's powerful. Really powerful. Last question. What do you like the most about yourself?
0: I like that. I am able to be flexible with myself, um, that I can now stand in my own truth and own it and be unapologetic.
1: Mm, And I, I really,
0: love that about
1: myself yeah that is powerful i want to end on that that is just a beautiful place to be and i don't think anybody wakes up there i think it takes a lot of hard work to get there yes. and nicole obviously you've done that work and now help other people to do the same so thank yes. you for that thank if people you. wanted to stay in touch with you um blue lotus blue lotus is the name says so you want to get the website yeah, but sure. Um,
0: yeah, it's Blue Lotus Clinical and Consultation Services. Um, and then um, my office number. Sorry, I had to, am <laughs> still memorizing things. Right. I'm not good with numbers. Uh, is 980 999 962 um, so people can call and schedule a consult. Um, I also see um, LCSWA or associate level mm-hmm. um, for supervision um, and everything I talked about is how I am as a supervisor. And yeah, um, I feel really strongly in, about giving back in that capacity as well. So,
1: yeah, that is so strong. Yeah. Well, thank you for your wisdom, for your time and your compassion and heart really, really appreciate you being part of this.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Kim. This was awesome. Thank you. Thank All right, everybody.
1: You. I hope your lid got flipped today and that you're able to reconnect to who God says that you are.
0: Thank you for listening to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycut. Please subscribe, rate, and share. You can find Kim on Facebook or Instagram at KB Honeycutt. To get an autographed copy of Kim's book, visit ButYourMotherLovesYou.com. Remember, No matter what, treat yourself well today.